as we were concluding last night, we, we landed on this idea that we're not just to be like a spiritual pinata. I worked so hard on that illustration, I have to bring it in again. We, we're not just to, to hang around waiting to be whacked, but we're to do something. We're to resist. And so if you're going to resist, you need to understand what you're resisting. You, you need to know. You know, when you're playing rock, paper, scissors, you're thinking, what's coming? You need to know what you're resisting in order to be able to resist. And so there's a phrase in Ephesians 6.11, which we'll read in just a moment, which describes what, the, what Paul calls the schemes of the devil. It's the strategies. It's the plans. It's the tactics. And we're going to take a short time. I'm so glad we thank you, worship team, for lifting our eyes to Jesus. What, they asked us, what, what songs? You, well, you guys picked great songs. Uh, just love the songs that we sang about uh, the majesty of Jesus. Um, but we're going to spend a brief time focusing on the schemes of the devil. And that's not because we want to give him any airtime, but we need to understand who our enemy is. So I kind of feel a little bit like I'm, if you were, last night I said that, you could have jumped into the boxing ring. I want to kind of put you in the boxing ring again. But now I'm kind of the coach in the corner. You know, you've gone through round one and you've taken a few hits and you're surprised he's, he's punching me. And, uh, and then the, the coach in the corner says, now listen, listen, pay attention. He's, he's, he's coming at you on your left and then he's, he's lulling you into this and then he's whacking you with, with the right or, or whatever it is. I, I feel like that's the type of chat that we're going to have today. And... It's so important because if you know your enemy's tactics, you can know how to respond. I often feel like 90% of the battle is won with just awareness. Because you're un when you're unaware, that's when you're really vulnerable. And so we're going to be looking at what are the enemy's tactics. Let's jump into Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to be looking at just two verses. And it's 6 verses 10 to 12. I know you've been in Ephesians for about two years, huh? Is that right, huh? We got to chapter 6, verse 10. Finally! <laughs> you know as a preacher that means it's not final, huh? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, as Nathan led us. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Pause. Can you see Paul has a biblical worldview? There are cosmic powers. And he's not afraid to tell, to tell you it, because then you can resist. So we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, against, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness... That's the age we're living in. And against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So the big idea for this session is that if you know the devil's schemes, it'll help you to resist. And we're going to be looking at seven tactics that the devil will use. And as we do that, my prayer for you as I was praying this morning is that you would identify the main ways that the devil tends to attack you. Because the way that the devil attacks me will be different to the way that he attacks you. And so I think it's, even as you're listening, don't just listen for content, but my prayer for you is that, oh, wait a minute, is that him? And then you deal with him. And that you, you we're going to pray at the end, and you're going to share with the person next to you, so I'm warning you now, that, that you're going to share something like, 
I feel this is one of the main tactics that the devil uses against me. And then you're going to pray with each other. Hallelujah. Amen. Are you ready for that? So let's go for it. Tactic number one is temptation. You might say, didn't we learn that in, in Sunday school? Or we're going to come back. Temptation. Temptation is always to something. Temptation to sin, really. And temptation, can we could do a whole sermon just on temptation, but it's really the realm of pleasures, pride, worldliness. But to be able to talk about temptation, we've got to talk about what sin is. So let's just define sin. Sin is a condition of the heart. One of the seminars this afternoon is going to be about the heart. Because sin is about your heart. It's about your heart and your mind, your will and your affections, your desires. And so it's, it's affecting your heart and then the practical outworking of that condition of your heart. So sin starts with something in your heart and then there's a practical outworking of that condition of the heart which results in actions, thoughts, behavior that offend God and break His holy law. That's what sin is. It's a condition that starts here but it results in thoughts and actions and behaviors that then break God's heart and break his law. Mark Deva says, every sin is really a short, sharp message to God. I don't like you. I would rather have these things than you effectively. They give me what I want. Can you see how sin is really a relational thing? If you take Diva's approach, it's not about what are the Ten Commandments again. It's you've broken God's heart because you've said, I want this rather than you. And so all temptation starts because that's the nature of temptation, because it's about our heart and the affections of the heart. Temptation is about your heart. It starts not with the actions on the outside. It starts with your desires. And so if you read James 1.14 you'll see that sin is actually, and temptation, is all about a misplaced love. It's about a love of the wrong thing. It's about putting your love in the wrong place. And if you have a misplaced desire or misplaced love, the devil can take that and exploit it. If, if that misplaced love wasn't there, it wouldn't be tempting. But because that misplaced love is there, James says that he takes that desire, that desire grows and it becomes something. And so we actually see this in the Genesis account. If you think of Eve, and uh, it says that Eve was tempted by the fruit of the forbidden tree because it was desirable to her. So, so it says in the ESV, it was a delight to her eyes. In the CSB translation, it says it was desirable for obtaining wisdom, which kind of tells you that there was something else behind this. It wasn't just, man, that looks like an amazing whatever fruit it was, but it was rather that this was desirable for something else. And actually, if you go and read that account, you'll see Satan was saying, you can, God's holding out on you. You'll know more. So actually, pride's mixed in there as well. But there was a desire in Eve that was what the devil tempted. And so Jesus warned us of the robbing power of life's pleasures, didn't he? In the, in the parable of the sower. And so temptation is about our desires. Another aspect of temptation is that we're warned in Scripture not to love the ways of the world or the things of the world. And so 1 John is really clear on this. 1 John 2, 15 and 17 says that we're not to love the world. We need to be careful of the desires of the flesh, 
the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And I was thinking of how in a town like Stellenbosch, we can easily be impressed by the wisdom of the world. We can get taken up by it. We can think, but, but it's, it's so clever. It's so this or it's so that. But actually the Bible says we're not to uh, be caught up. We're not to love the ways of this world. We're not to love earthly wisdom. Thinking of the sex and gender revolution and, you, you know, you can speak to younger people and, and you can feel like, but this is just so the way it should be and the Bible can seem so archaic. And, and if you're not careful, you've loved the ways of the world and you've not loved the revelation in Scripture. And so temptation is about our desires. One more thing about temptation is that temptation thrives in idleness. And the most clear evidence of this is King David. If you know the story of King David, it, it'll say in your Bible, it'll say something like, in the time that kings go to war, David lay on his couch. And then just thought, I'll just do a bit of checking the Instagram. Next minute he was on the roof and checking someone bath because it's bath time and he's got the highest house and he can see into everyone else's houses. Where did that all start? In the time that kings go to war, David stayed at home and sat on the couch. And so I just want to say, be very careful of idleness because the devil uses idleness in temptation. And the wisdom literature about the sluggard, I could give you a very long list, it's in my notes if you want it, of all the warnings about the sluggard. And the sluggard and idleness really go together. And I want to just urge you to be careful of temptation, to know that temptation is about your heart, to know it's about your desires, to know it's about idleness, and to therefore resist. So here's some strategies for resisting temptation. My first strategy is really the only one that you need. Because temptation is drawing on a misplaced love, then the antitoxin or the antidote for, for temptation is increased love for God. If you love God more, you will not be tempted. I am not tempted to follow after other people's wives because I love my wife. If, if I love Nadine, then other people aren't really tempting at all. Does that make sense? And so love for God is the ultimate way of resisting the devil. Mark Deaver, I think it is, said sin is a worship disorder. The more you worship God and love God truly, the less sin is even enticing because your desires are satisfied in God. And so this thing is not tempting at all. And so resisting temptation is not primarily about self-control. And I think so many books make this mistake. It's strategies for accountability and accountability is good and self-control is good. But resisting temptation is not about self-control primarily. It's about changing the desire. It's about having a greater desire. You see, Colossians says that rules like do not taste and do not touch have no power to restrain sensual indulgence. That's Colossians 2, 21 and 23. Rules have got no power to change your heart. And self-control alone won't do it. But love for God. The more you love God, the less you'll love sin. And then temptation won't be very tempting 
at all. So the first strategy for resisting temptation is love God more. The second one is understand or believe or walk in the good of your new relationship to sin and temptation. Walk in the good of your new relationship to sin and temptation. When you believed in Jesus, you were transferred from a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son, whom God loves. Amen. When you were saved, you died to sin. And you were raised to new life in Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 6 says. And so the power and the control of sin in our lives has been utterly smashed. Read Romans chapter 6. You are no longer a slave to sin, but you're a slave to righteousness. And so many Christians just don't understand what's happened to them at salvation. Salvation is the greatest miracle that could ever happen to you. Your whole relationship to sin, Satan, and death has been transformed in an instant through faith in Jesus Christ. And so you are no longer a slave to sin. And that means you can choose to not sin. The Christian can choose to not sin. Which is why in Romans chapter 6 it says... Do not let sin reign in your, in your mortal body. You have the power to choose to not let sin reign because you're not a slave to sin. You're not under the control of sin. In fact, the Christian who says, I just couldn't help myself. You are lying. Just tell the person next to you, you're a liar when you said that. Because, two, because 1 Corinthians 10, 13, you guys like that far too much, telling each other you're liars. Huh? <laughs> 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability to endure, and He will give you a way out. He will give you a way out. And so, you don't, you are not ever in a position, if you're a Christ follower, you're never in a position that you have no power to resist. I just couldn't help myself. That is a lie from the pit of hell. You need to know, I'm not a slave to sin. I don't have to follow this temptation. I can stand. I can resist. I can say no. I can say, do not let sin reign in my mortal body. I can know God will not let me be tempted beyond my ability to endure. And so, a thing that really helped me years ago when I was about 16 was reading a book by Jerry Bridges on holiness. And there was this chapter that what you need is obedience, not victory. And so many Christians are, I'm trying to get victory in this area of my life. It's wrong thinking. He's won the victory already. You're not trying to win a victory. You're living in the good of the victory that was won for you. Very different. And you agree? And so don't listen to the, the temptations of the devil and feel like you're under power that you can't resist. The third strategy for resisting temptation is serve Jesus. In the NIV translation, Romans 12 verse 9, it says this, Never be lacking in zeal. And then it tells you how you can never be lacking in zeal. But keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. And so if you're on children's ministry or set-up ministry or worship ministry or anything where you're trying to get volunteers, this is the verse you need to underline and use it on people. Okay? <laughs> if you want to stay spiritually alive, serve. There's just something about it, and it's in Scripture. If you serve, something happens. It preserves you. It, if you're serving for Jesus, it preserves you, and it helps you to resist 
temptation by never lacking zeal. So that's our first strategy of the devil. The second strategy of the devil is accusation. I think there are many people that this will be a strategy he uses against you. So Revelation 12.10 says that our enemy, our adversary, his name is that he is the accuser of the brethren, of the brothers and sisters. That's what he does. So that's his name. It's his, it's his method. And so he loves to condemn us, doesn't he? He loves to accuse us of things we've done. But here's the big problem. Most of the time, the accusations the devil bring up, brings about you, they're true. That's why they, they stick. Because it's like he says, yeah, you did this. And I did. Or you didn't do this. And I didn't. It's actually true. And so he's going, eh, eh, eh. And you're going, I know. You know his accusations are actually true. We'll come back to that in a moment because you can use that to defeat him. These accusations are, are designed, though, not just to make you feel bad. They're designed to undermine gospel truth of the finished work of Jesus Christ. They're designed to undermine what Jesus has done for you because that takes away from Jesus' glory. And they are designed uh, uh, to undermine our faith in Jesus' finished work. His accusations will undermine Jesus' forgiveness of our sin. You see, if he can get you to wallow in your sin, you did this, I know, I did that. And then if you wallow in your sin, he's undermining Jesus' work for you. I love 1 John 1 verse 9. You should underline it until it comes out the back of your Bible. That, that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hallelujah. But have you ever thought, who is he being faithful to? The he there is the Father. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just. Who is he being faithful to? Is he being faithful to you? No. He's being faithful to Jesus. Because Jesus, when you confess your sin, Jesus says, Father, I paid for that. And so if the Father punished you, it would be saying what Jesus did wasn't enough for your sin. And so when you sin and you confess your sin, Jesus says, I've paid for that. And the Father is faithful to the Son. And so he forgives you and cleanses you from all unrighteousness. And therefore God is glorified as the grace giver and Jesus is glorified as the one who forgave you. And you get forgiven. Hallelujah. What an amazing deal. The devil, when he gets you wallowing in your sin, I just can't believe I did that. Well, you've just sinned again, you proud person. You can't believe you did that. I can. I, I just can't forgive myself. Oh, so what Jesus did on the cross wasn't enough? Is there something you can add to that? Don't wallow in your sin, brothers and sisters. That doesn't honor Jesus at all. Be forgiven. That honors Jesus and glorifies what the Father gave you. Amen. And so the devil tries to undermine forgiveness of sin. And then he keeps you stuck in your sin and shame. And we all know what, it, what happens is that person stops coming to church or you stop coming to church. Something's happened because <laughs> it makes us feel like we, we, we can't be there. And then you get people saying, I need to sort out a few things and then I'll come back. The whole point is you can't sort things out. You need Jesus. Amen. And so he discourages us from repentance because he knows that will lead us to forgiveness and the mercy and grace and the worship of Jesus that is 
what is meant to be happening. And so what are the strategies against accusation? I said to you that his accusations are true, but we can turn that around and use it against him. Because his accusations are true, let his accusations bring you to repentance. It's the kindness of God when you realize you need to repent. Because repentance is the way you receive mercy. And so if you're not knowing that you need to repent, then you're not receiving mercy. You're not receiving forgiveness. But if the, if the devil comes and accuses you, say, thank you so much for pointing that out. I'm going to go to my Savior. Lord, won't you forgive me? Imagine the devil. He's like, Durr! he's going to stop trying to accuse you. Because you just keep saying, thank you so much. And you go to your Savior and you ask him to forgive you. And then his accusation is done and dusted because it was forgiven by Jesus on the cross. Second strategy for resisting is being rooted in the truth of God that is revealed in Scripture. And particularly, I think the accusations of the devil, they come in two forms. They come against our actions, the things we have or haven't done, and they come about our identity. They are undermining who we are. And so you really need to know uh, if, you, if you want a list like that, I can give a list later to you. But you need to know some of the scriptures about who you are des described or defined in scripture. And so be rooted in scripture. And when the devil comes and speaks lies over you, accusations, remind yourself of your identity in Jesus Christ. Amen. The third strategy that the devil brings is deception. So this is different to accusation. And uh, in John 8, Jesus himself called Satan a liar and the father of lies. Jesus said there is no truth, not some truth, there is no truth in him. And uh, the Bible actually attributes uh, um, Eve's uh, temptation to the devil's deception, that the devil tricked her. And so the devil is cunning, he's deceptive, and that's 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3. One of the ways the devil will deceive us is he quotes scripture to us. The devil knows some of the Bible, just doesn't know it that well. And so he quotes scripture out of context to us. And he did that to Jesus. When he was tempting Jesus, he quoted Psalm 91, but he was just quoting it really badly. And so Jesus resisted him using scripture quoted well. And so the devil deceives us. And sometimes he'll even use things that, Wait a minute, isn't that in the Bible? That sounds true, but he's misapplied it to you. One of the things the devil will tend to do is he'll lie to you about who God is. He'll lie to you about who you are. And he'll lie to you about others. And so he tries to deceive us in those three realms. 2 Corinthians 11 says that he appears, he masquerades as an angel of light. He, he has this air of deception around him. And so sometimes he can come and it can appear harmless but it's not harmless. And so you really need discernment there. This is like his prowling around last night. He's not always going, wow, trying to scare you. He's sometimes trying really deceptively to get in and to discourage. So what are the strategies for resisting his deception? You're going to hear this repeatedly. At the end, you're going to find out, I want you to read your Bible. Strategy for resisting, devote yourself to reading Scripture. Don't just read Instagram quotes of Scripture. Read the Scriptures yourself. Read the Scriptures daily. Read the Scriptures with others so that you won't, you won't get into misinterpretation. Ask, 
when deception comes, ask, is this true according to Scripture? Just because someone said it or it's in a book or it's on a, don't believe stuff. Ask, is this true according to Scripture? And secondly, we, we went through a season in our church where we invited people to come to what we called listening prayer. And one of the things that we would do with these people, we'd always have two people praying with someone else. And we would uh, pray through various things, but the part that I most enjoyed was just pausing with the person and saying, let's ask God your Father to speak truth to you. So often there'd been lies, there'd been lies about God, there'd been lies about themselves, there'd been lies about others. And then we'd just stop and we'd say, we're just going to wait now and we're going to let the Father speak His truth over you. And we just wait. And you see people just break down and encounter God as they just hear the truth of what God the Father, of what Jesus with the Holy Spirit really say and feel about you. And uh, seeing godly perspective come and see deception just shrink and disappear in the power of the truth of who God is and what He says over people. And so the two strategies here are devote yourself to Scripture. And why don't you pray? And just ask God. You can do it by yourself. You don't need someone else. You can just say, Lord, won't you just speak to me truths? Tell me, tell me what's true. I, I've identified a lie, but just speak truth over me. You with me? The fourth strategy is distraction. I know guys in Stellenbosch aren't busy or anything, I'm sure. Distraction. I was thinking about distraction, and uh, distraction is all about opportunity cost, isn't it? If you're doing one thing, it means you're not doing another thing. And so, Jesus warned us in Luke 8, verse 14, in the NIV, it says, He warned us about life's worries, life's riches, and life's pleasures. That won't kill you, but they'll stunt your growth. That you won't produce the fruit that you were intended to produce. And so for me, that's a passage about distraction. Uh, the, 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 the plant that was meant to grow up and produce a lot of fruit didn't produce a lot of fruit because of life's worries, life's riches, and life's pleasures. And in his great book, uh, Randy Alcorn wrote a book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, which I can highly recommend. He, in one place, he talks about how possessions clutter our lives. You think, I'm going to buy this mountain bike. This mountain bike is going to solve all my problems. I'm going to be so much happier. Uh, I'm going to get up the mountain so much easier. I'm going to have so much fun. Uh, I'm going to be missional. I'm going to reach other people for Jesus with this mountain bike. Uh, um, but then you, you take all the time to research the mountain bike. So now you're not buying a mountain bike. Now you're researching mountain bikes and the gear sets and the, all the things. And then, and then when you eventually get to buying it, you've already invested a lot of time in buying this bike. Then you've got to look at the mountain bikes are so expensive these days, you have to finance it probably. So now you've got to look at the best solution for financing it if you're buying a serious mountain bike. And then you get the mountain bike. Now you've got to think, oh, my garage isn't big enough. So we're going to have to extend the garage over there. Because I don't want the car and the bike, you know, like they need their own personal space. You know, and, uh, and then all of a sudden you're researching. Now I need something to, to carry the mountain bike on the back of my car. You know where I'm going. Yeah. And, and actually when it's in the garage, it shouldn't be down. Because then the tires could get a flat spot. So it should be hanging, you know what I mean? So now I need to buy something. And then, oh, I need to change my insurance policy. Because what if my mountain bike 
before you know it, one flipping mountain bike has become this monstrous thing. Do you, do you see what I'm talking about? Now, if you mountain bike, glory to Jesus. Yeah. It's not about the mountain bike. I'm simply saying things clutter our lives. Things aren't just things. They actually clutter our lives. And so the devil has two strategies here when it comes to distraction and possessions. He either withholds something from you, and then your thoughts are all about what it would be like if you had it. Or he gives it to you, and then your, your, your attention gets distracted by having it. So either way, he's got you. Can you see that? And so things are not bad, but we need to be careful that things don't become a major distraction in us. Because material things can really rob us of time, of thought and space. And I'm not an ascetic. I, I, I totally believe in having uh, good things and delighting in the things that God lets us have. And I even have a mountain bike. But we need to be so careful that things don't become a distraction for us. Another distraction that we're all dealing with these days is this, isn't it? Is media, consumption, uh, busyness, the fact that you can do work at any time, anywhere, um, and Jesus told us to seek first his kingdom. And if we're careful, if we're not careful, we can easily, we're seeking all sorts of things. But are we really seeking the kingdom? And so I think I would sum up that the danger here is there's a danger and a deception of letting good things becoming ultimate things. So entertainment's good, but if it's taking up so much of your time, that it's actually taking away. I remember, it's an opportunity to, opportunity cost. Rest. You know, I haven't seen your church. Like, yeah, I've been so busy. I, I really needed to rest. And it can sound so good. It can sound so noble. Or recreation. I just needed some me time. Or health. All these things are good. Family. Family can become a major distraction for you. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom. And you think, Family. The things you really react to are your idols. You can even make family an idol. I've got four kids. I'm committed to family. Just be careful that all these good things don't become ultimate things. When Jesus said, seek first my kingdom and lay these other things down. Busyness reduces our capacity. You've only got so much capacity. And if you drink good coffee given to you by Kevin in the morning because you hinted, <laughs> it doesn't increase your capacity. You've only got so much capacity. And, and if you get distracted, it reduces your ability to join yourself to the church and the mission of the church. Busyness hinders relationships. Relationships become superficial. They don't go deep. Re busyness will hinder evangelism. And busyness militates against intimacy with Jesus. You just can't do intimacy with Jesus quickly. It'll take time. Busyness chokes the life of God and the fruitfulness of the Spirit, which God wants for every believer in Jesus. And yet busyness is subtle because it can feel so right. Just remember, he's an, he masquerades as an angel of light. In good things lie dangers. So what's our strategy for resisting? 
I simply want to say, don't major in the minor and minor in the momentous. I once uh, went on a driving, a professional driving course, and uh, they, 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 at this racetrack, they, they flooded an area of, of, of like a big parking lot. They flooded it, and they taught us how to handle cars that are skidding on a wet uh, parking lot. And I kept on thinking, this isn't real life. <laughs> kind of, like we made, this guy has devoted himself to teaching people how to skid. And I just thought, dude, you're wasting your life. You, you, you've, you've gotten so good at teaching people how to drift and skid. But it's like, there must be more important things in life. And I have found this phrase, don't major in the minor. Because if you end up majoring in minor things, you end up minoring in the momentous things. So I found that helpful. And then I want to encourage you to, I don't think you'll be able to do this this morning, but to do a regular diary check. A time check, how do I spend my time? A money check, and a where am I investing my relational time check? And to just review and to ask, do the choices that I've made align with my stated priorities? So we might say, yeah, I love Jesus. Does your diary love Jesus? Does your wallet love Jesus? Does how you're investing, you're getting what I'm saying? Is there an alignment between what we say and what is actually true you could also ask the question do my priorities reveal would i be if i was accused of seeking first the kingdom would there be enough evidence to convict me and that'll keep you from distraction the fifth one there's only seven is discouragement and fear and for many in this room i feel this will be a strategy that the devil uses against you It's always a bit dangerous when you have to read lots of different translations of the Bible to get to the one that you want. <laughs> but in Numbers 11 verse 3, there's a little word there, and I think a lot of the Bible translators have been um, embarrassed to describe Moses as depressed. Most of them say he was very meek. But the underlying word can actually mean depressed. And if you read Numbers 11, Moses is going through various challenges. And uh, the current challenge at the time is that he's facing opposition from his own, he's from Miriam and Aaron, uh, the people close to him. And, and it says that he was very meek or he was depressed, Numbers 11 verse 3. And even the great leaders of the Bible, that's why I'm sad that the translators didn't bring that out. Because, yes, Moses is a great leader, but he was depressed. Or at least he was really battling with that moment. You think of a guy like Elijah in 1 Kings 19. And, and he's just done this amazing spiritual warfare thing. And just overcome all these false prophets. And they got killed and fire came down. And you'd think he'd be on a high. But he's running away for his life. And he's asking God, would you just kill me? Just take me out of just take me out, Lord. I can't do this anymore. He's depressed. Nehemiah, think of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter four. And he's doing this great work for God. And there's this guy, Sanballat. And there's these oppositions, and there are these rumors of war and threat and intimidation. And actually nothing ever happens. But it's just the idea that it'll happen. 
And so there's this desire, there's this strategy of the devil to try and discourage them from working. They even mock them that this thing, if a little fox walks over it, it'll all just tumble down this wall you're building. It's all intimidation and threat. It's all about discouragement. I want to say to you that uh, in a Mamzum Toti, when God called us to, to a Mamzum Toti, I arrived there and I remember really wrestling, thinking, God, I would have gone to Timbuktu for you. Why did you bring me to a Mamzum Toti? I couldn't even spell a Mamzum Toti. And I remember going on a prayer walk one day and I was wrestling with God and asking God, why did you bring me here? There's churches here. Why do you need me here? I'll go somewhere where there isn't a church. Why did you bring me here? And I felt the closest thing to an audible voice of God ever. I felt God say to me a phrase I'd never heard before. I want you to build for me a non-racial, multicultural, class-crossing church. That's why I brought you here. And you know what I felt next? Demonic fear. I felt literally an audible voice from the devil saying, you will never do that. And he just motivated me so much. Watch me trust Jesus to do that, bud. But I felt as soon as I heard what God had told me to do, it wasn't even seconds later, the devil just, you will not do that here. This place is conservative. This place was the head of the AWB and KZN. This will not happen in this place. But what he didn't know, he had actually stirred me up to trust God for more. Amen? So the devil will use threats and fear to try and control you or to limit our obedience to Jesus or to delay it. So what's your strategy? Let God fight for you. This is not the same as let go and let God. Okay, I think I'll bash that later. Let God fight for you. If you go back to Numbers and you read Numbers chapter 12 with Moses and Miriam, you'll actually see that God gets pretty ticked off with Aaron and Miriam. And Moses doesn't actually fight them, but God deals with them very clearly and says, don't touch my anointed effectively. And I want to say there's many times when it comes to the devil coming against you. You don't even have to talk to the devil. You can just talk to your father. You can talk to the Holy Spirit, your helper. And you can just say, Lord, would you just vindicate me here? Would you protect me? Would you just ask God? You don't have to focus on the devil. You can just ask God to fight for you. I love the song that we sang earlier. Secondly, ask God for a revelation of his omnipresence and his omnipotence. If you're feeling discouraged and afraid, it means you're not believing something. You're not actually believing God's with you. Because it would be logically crazy to be afraid if God was with you. If the creator of the universe was actually with you, why would you be afraid? But he is with you. So what you need, God doesn't need to change. You just need to become more aware of his presence. And there's a seminar on that this afternoon. But you need a revelation. You need to practice the presence of God and see God more majestically as the omnipresent and omnipotent one. And one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Hebrews 13:5. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And so if you're feeling intimidated, it means you're not believing that. Because you can't believe that and be intimidated. The, just, the two just don't work. 
Thirdly, know that greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. 1 John 4 verse 4. Jesus is not just with me, he's inside of me by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there is no contest here, as we heard from Nathan this morning. There is, there is just no contest. We shouldn't even call it spiritual warfare, because that's giving the devil too much. Great is he that's in me. And then lastly, ask God to fill you with his love. Also 1 John 4, but verse 18, because perfect love drives out fear. Again, when you're aware of the presence of God, fear just has no place. Because what would you be afraid of? It's like the kid who's crying with a nightmare in the night and then dad comes and, and, and suddenly they're not afraid anymore. Perfect love drives out all fear. Amen. The sixth and second last strategy we'll look at is isolation. I think I often say uh, at Rick Road, the devil doesn't have any new tricks because the old ones are still working. And this must be one of the oldest tricks and traps that the devil has. The devil likes to get us isolated from the family of God. He gets us out of fellowship, out of community. And so this normally happens if, you, if you're getting into some compromise and to some sin, is you just start pulling away a little bit. You just create a little bit of distance. And some of that is maybe to hide what's happening, and some of it might be shame. And so that's normally what tends to happen with, with that. Or you've gotten hooked into the whole busyness thing and you've gotten distracted. And so we start to feel unease about worship and Christian community. And sin does that. It likes to hide. It likes to withdraw. Or we have already sinned and so we feel shame. But that is deception and accusation. It means you just haven't, you haven't accessed the greatest gift given, which is repentance and forgiveness and receiving God's mercy. And so this person will, will tend to say what I said earlier. They'll, they'll tend to say, I just need to sort out some things and then I'll, I'll come back. No, brother, you can't sort them out. You, you, you need community to help you. I love the, the, the paralytic in Mark 2 whose friends brought him to Jesus. And sometimes we can't even bring ourselves into the presence, but we need friends who will. When it comes to isolation and people separating themselves out from community, don't you find it strange that some people willingly self-impose the harshest punishment that is available for the church in terms of discipline? If you've really, really, really messed up consistently, the elders of the church might have to say to you, you can't come to church. It's the ultimate discipline, excommunication. But people do that to themselves. I'll just stop coming. In Corinthians, where that passage is being described, it says, hand him over to Satan. Like outside of our community is handing him over to Satan. And yet people just say, no, 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 I'm just isolating. I'm self-isolating. The Apostle Paul would go, pardon? What? That's the ultimate it's the end game. It's the ultimate end process of church discipline that hasn't worked because it hasn't revived your heart back to Jesus. But people just willingly. So be on your guard. If you're ever feeling hurt by the church, you've never heard those phrases, hey? 
if you're ever feeling hurt by the church, if you feel like, I'm just going to withdraw a little, I just need a little bit of space. If, if your life had a dashboard, the dashboard should be going, deet, 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 deet. It's not just you. The devil is isolating you. So resist him. So what's the strategy for resisting? Determine to not walk alone. Determine, I will not walk alone. I so love that you've got discipleship groups and life groups. And I just want to say, decide, I will never walk alone. I will not let the devil isolate me. I feel like we're meant to fight in platoons, protected by those around us and protecting those around us. And Hebrews exhorts us, as we know, all church leaders were using this in COVID. We are not to give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. That's not just a nice little verse. It's vital for spiritual warfare and resisting the devil. Amen. Time's up. My last point is my longest. The, the seventh strategy of the devil is sickness. And you could include suffering. I want to be clear, not all sickness and suffering is a demonic attack. Amen. Sometimes you're just sick. And so this is a massive topic, and I was, I was debating whether to touch on it, but I'm going to throw something out there, and maybe there'll be some conversations after. In summary, this is what I want to say when it comes to sickness and spiritual warfare. I believe that there are three potential sources for pain, if you read the Bible. And the big idea is you need to understand or discern which one might this be so that you can respond appropriately. Okay, so the first source is your own unwise sinful actions and the consequences that follow. So sometimes what's happening in your life is just because of what you've been doing. And so you must just stop it. There's no spiritual warfare. You don't have to rebuke the devil. You just stop it. And if you don't have that in your grid, man, you blame everyone else. And the devil doesn't even have to bother about you. He's like, they're sorted. I don't even have to worry about them. I can devote my attention to other people. If you're being stupid, just stop it. Okay. All right. The second source of pain in our life, and if you're enamored with certain church movements or certain churches that have become famous in the last 10, 15 years, you might not like this one. But the second source of pain is God's sovereign, loving fathering of you and His sovereign purposes. And I don't have time to unpack this fully because this could be a whole weekend itself. But I'm just going to reference two or three quick things. John chapter 9, the guy's blind. The devil, uh, the devil, the disciples ask. We've been doing way too much reading. The disciples ask, did this man sin or did it, was it his parents sin? You see, they're trying to work out what's the source? What, where did this come from? And Jesus said, no, 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 no. This happened that the works of God might be displayed in him. Why is this guy blind? Well, he's not blind because he's been doing dumb things. He's not even blind because there was some sin. He's not even blind because of the devil. He's, he's blind because I've decided I'm going to reveal my glory through healing him. That's why he's blind. He's been blind all these years. Yes, so that Jesus can meet him and heal him. We don't like that. 
if we're honest. But God has sovereign plans. And this guy's whole life was so that he could meet Jesus and get healed and be in your Bible. Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, had a thorn in his flesh. And you could get into a whole debate as to who gave him the thorn. But he had one. And God said, I'm not taking it away for a purpose so that my power can be made perfect in your weakness. For my grace is sufficient for you. And then the, 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 the summit is Hebrews 12, verse 5 to 11. In the NIV it says, Endure hardship as discipline. The Lord is cheating your sons. When last did you hear that? Sure, I'm going through such a hard time. Endure it as God lovingly disciplining you because he's cheating you as a son or a daughter. And then at the end of the passage, it says that there's this fruit of righteousness. We all want the fruit of righteousness. But the way you get it is the process God's taking you through if you read that passage. And so what I've taught myself to ask is, Dad, is this you? And quite quickly, I'll know if it is or isn't. But if I don't ever ask, Dad, are you doing this? Is this delay? So right now, our house has been sold, but the guy's bond keeps getting declined. And then more money got dumped into the deal. And I thought, well, that's going to be automatic. And it's still not automatic. And I'm thinking, Dad, is this you? Because when we moved to Mamsamtoti, the guy bought my, my shares in the company that we sold to buy the house and thought everything sorted, we moved, we arrived, and Absa was happy, and we were happy, and we were just waiting for some money to come from this guy, and it never came. And I was like, but God, didn't you bring us to a Mamsam Toti? Yeah, no, I brought you to a Mamsam Toti. And I, nine months, nothing happened. And eventually, in about July, sorry, I'm a bit slow, but in about July, I got praying with God and saying, Father, what's happening? It's like, oh, at last. And then he spoke to me and he told me I needed to forgive this guy, William, for some of the stuff that William had done. And I forgave him and two weeks later there was money in my account. So the father was doing something. It wasn't the devil. I had rebuked the devil. I had, do you not, do you get what I'm saying? But I never asked, Dad, is this you? Are you wanting to do something in me? I do need to finish. I know I need to finish. Job 36, verse 15. Have I? Okay. Job 36, 15 says this. God delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ears through adversity. God delivers the afflicted by their affliction and he opens ears through their adversity. C.S. Lewis famously said, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So the second source of pain could be your loving father loving you and you're just not understanding his sovereign purposes right now. The third source of pain is what I would describe as the age we live in. Notice I didn't just say the devil, I said the age we live in. And the age we live in, you need to understand. Remember last night in the passage it said this present darkness. The age you live in is a now and not yet age. It's the age after Jesus has risen again and, and the time before he's come back. 
And in this age, the sinful actions of others can impact your life. And in this age, your own sinful actions can impact your life. But here, the sinful actions of others can impact you. It's an age in which the systems of this world, the political, socioeconomic, and even natural systems, have been impacted by the fall. And so they are imperfect. It's an age in which your body is going to age and decay and eventually shrivel up and die. You, you can believe in Jesus as much as you like. You're still going to die. Even Lazarus died again. So it's an age where you will age. I'm sorry, but you're going to age. I've just decided gray is good. It's an age in which your body, just the fact that you've got flu, it's not always the devil. It might just be the flu. Okay? But it's also an age in which you do have an enemy and he is active. And if you come to my seminar this afternoon, that's not a plug for my seminar, we're going to look at demonization and how tied they are to, to, to physical ailments in Jesus' time. And so sometimes it can be attack of the devil. But don't have such a blunt way of thinking that it's always the devil. Because you'll just miss other things or you'll get dis discouraged. So we've been looking at the schemes of the devil. And what it is clear in scripture is that sometimes the sickness that we're encountering is from our adversary. And so we see in Luke 13... There was a woman who had a disabling spirit or a spirit of infirmity, depending on your translation. And she'd been kept in bondage, Jesus said, by Satan for 18 years. So she had some disablement, but Jesus says this is the devil. And Jesus healed other people and didn't say it was the devil. But this woman, he said, this was the devil. And so he set her free. And so Luke 10 Jesus went about, Peter preaches in Cornelius' house, and it says he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. And so if there is sickness that is from devil oppression, let's just set them free. Amen? But let's not say that every sickness is from the devil. Now that's a lot of, that's a big chunk of theology there, and we can talk over coffee some more. But I think we do have to understand when it comes to sickness, the sources of pain. So what's the strategy here? Prayerfully consider the potential source of your suffering. Ask, is there something I should stop? Ask, Father, is this you? And if it's simply because of the age we're living in, pray for the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in healing. You can, you can pray for that, whether it's the devil or whether it's just the fallen state of the world, you can pray for healing. Hallelujah. Pray for a disabling spirit or a demonic influence to go in Jesus' name. And you might say, but I don't know if it is. Well, if it is, if it isn't, then nothing will go. And if it is, they'll go. So pray. That's what I reckon. Set captives free. Set oppressed people free. I pray that we'll go away from this weekend with such a passion to set people free from any oppression in any form or manner or means. And let's also pray that we accept that this side of Jesus' second coming, there will be sin. There will be sickness. There will be sadness and death. So don't get totally knocked sideways when it happens. I know we've covered a lot of ground, but a large part of the battle is won when you've identified what's happening because then you won't be like the pinata just waiting for the next whack, but you can actually resist the devil. You can use some of these strategies. You can take action.